Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. Targeted probe and educate reviews by the Medicare administrative contractors are back in the news. Reporting our lead story this morning is healthcare attorney Andrew Walkler. Also on today's Monitor Monday, healthcare attorney David Glazer is standing by with another example of risky business. Changes that appear to favor auditors but not providers are being proposed by CMS. Senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen is standing by to report that developing story. Rack Monitor investigative reporter and New York attorney Edward Roach reports on his near-death experience in a Barcelona hospital. It's a story we're calling the Spanish Inquisition. And Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley has the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hershey, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. You know, today I was going to talk about either the RACs or the Medicare Advantage plans, but those topics have been preempted for now by a raging controversy online about the change in the 2019 IPPS final rule concerning the inpatient admission order. As a basic review, when CMS established the two midnight rule, they also added a condition of payment which requires an inpatient admission order. Then, in sub-regulatory guidance, they specify that the admission order must be authenticated prior to discharge. And as many of you have probably experienced, if you had an admission audited, the first thing that was done was to look for the admission order and the authentication. If it wasn't done prior to discharge, the admission was automatically denied. After four and a half years, CMS realized that their contractors were denying admissions solely because the order was not authenticated prior to discharge. Once they realized that was happening, they stated, it was not our intent when we finalized the admission order documentation requirements that they should by themselves lead to the denial of payment for otherwise medically reasonable necessary inpatient stay. To clear up any uncertainty of their intent, they used the rulemaking process to remove the admission order as a condition of payment, a change that became effective on October 1st. Now, I would assume that all CMS contractors read the proposed rules so that once CMS said it was not their intent that these admissions be denied, every contractor should have stopped denying and instead have looked at each case to determine if payment was appropriate. They did not need to have to wait until the rule was finalized, because that was sub-regulatory guidance, yet these denials persisted. But even with the order as a condition of payment, CMS said it was not absolute. If intent could be established, the admission still could be billed and paid under Part A. So here's where it got controversial. In my Rack Monitor articles and during my webinar, I thought it made it clear that getting an admission order was not made optional. If you had a process in place to ensure every admission had an inpatient order and every admission order was signed prior to discharge, you should keep doing it. But if an admission did get through without an authenticated order or any order at all, and your process was to automatically self-deny, I recommended reconsidering that. I felt and continue to feel that the admission would be otherwise payable 
and that a hospital could evaluate every case and potentially bill it to Part A for payment. Note that I'm saying the hospital could potentially bill it. I'm not making a blanket recommendation to bill every Part A to Part A every stay lacking an admission order. Each case must be reviewed on its merits and the investigation and thought process should be documented. Each case should also be analyzed to see why it happened and how such circumstances can be prevented in the future. But best, the best laid plans often go awry. So that's my stance. You can read more in a very long article that's going to be published this Friday, excuse me, Thursday, on Rack Monitor eNews. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Becker. Good morning, Nancy. Uh, good morning, Chuck. And back with another report here on Targeted Probe and Educate. Um, first of all, for therapy listeners, CGS has added outpatient physical and occupational therapy to their Targeted Probe and Educate list. So heads up to folks that are in the CGS Medicare Administrative Contractors region. Next up, we got a uh, memorandum from one of our listeners, Jill. She said she'd love to hear any news on auditing of HBO. And that doesn't mean HBO, the television show. It means hyperbaric oxygen. It seems many facilities in the country have received denials, Jill continues, or requests for HBO records from their MAC. And indeed, Jill, you are absolutely correct. So I just took a quick sampling here, and I went out to the Novitas, Medicare Administrative Contractor, and I looked at both the JH and the JL Novitas region, and I selected the JH region, which is down in the Central Southwest, and they do have hyperbaric oxygen under review in the Targeted Probe and Educate program. So first of all, um, Novitas gives preemptively for anybody to pick up a checklist of your documentation requirements should you be probed on HBO. And these include signed physician orders, a history of present illness to include clinical documentation of diagnosis, symptoms supporting medical necessity of services, including, if applicable, the wound grade classification per the Wagner scale, HBO progress notes, including measurable signs of healing, the HBO treatment log with the documented length of treatment time, results of all testing and services provided, documentation of physician attendance and supervision of HBO therapy, as well as the itemized bill. Please note that your letter, if you are chosen to be probed, may contain additional items that need to be sent with your ADR. The JH Novitas MAC has completed their targeted probe and educate for hyperoxygen therapy, and they've published the results for round one. And their findings, which you can find on their website if you go take a peek over there at the Novitas website, it states through complex data analysis, the medical review part A identified provider billing practices and services posing greatest risk to the Medicare program. And those chosen to participate in the HBO targeted probe and educate through the data analysis, Frank, you ought to be listening to this and smiling, process were offered education prior to, during, and after the probe had been completed. And I think those elements are really important, prior to, during, and after the probe. They published the results of round one as follows. They completed 38 probes 
in the Novitas JH jurisdiction, 23 closed with a minor air classification, six closed with a moderate air, three probes closed with a major air classification, and six probes were closed with an insufficient sample size. And they give a pie chart as well as some bar graphs with respect to the states. And it would appear that um, if you were in Arkansas, the probes were about 100%. If you were um, in Oklahoma and Louisiana, not so well. The reason for denial, insufficient documentation to port to that supporting services is medically reasonable and necessary, incomplete missing treatment records, insufficient documentation of diagnostic or physician progress notes, insufficient documentation of response to treatment and measurable signs of healing. And then they go on to uh, discuss how they have provided in education, both pre-education prior to the probe beginning, intra-education during the probe, and the education process following round one. Um, all providers have been educated on the results. In round two of the JH hyperbaric oxygen therapy, TPE is scheduled to begin December of 2018. Now we're going to go over to our poll today, sponsored once again by our good friends at the American College of Physician Advisors. In keeping on our theme of targeted probe and educate today, um, I wanted to double check with our listeners to determine what you've been doing because we've known many have reported Target and Probe and Educate. If you've been involved in TPE, did you appeal results summer all following round one? Check number one. If you appealed results summer all following round two, check number two. And number three, if you've not been invited to participate in Target and Probe and Educate, and of course, if you're not a provider. Chuck, we'll be back with the results of that later in the program. Thanks, Nancy, very much. I was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent, Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the President and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in the broadcast. And coming up in about uh, 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from David Glazer, Frank Cohen, Ed Roach, and Andrew Walkler. This is Monday. It's October the 15th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Trusted for more than 50 years, the American Medical Association drives healthcare communication for medical procedures and services. The AMA CPT code set is constantly updated by the AMA CPT editorial panel with insight from clinical and industry experts. It reflects the latest innovations in healthcare and helps to improve the delivery of care. The AMA store offers a full line of products to address CPT, HCPCS, ICD-10 coding, reimbursement, practice management, impairment, HIPAA, and electronic health records. To purchase these products and more, visit amastore.com. We're back in a program. Note there's a very important webcast coming your way on October the 23rd. It's about DRG downgrading. Now, downgrading is a tactic used by payers to reduce hospital payments by reducing DRGs and then, therefore, denying relevant diagnostic codes. That webcast is coming your way on October the 23rd. Here now with the Monitor Money Risky Business segment is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And this morning, David has two reports and good news to report, too. Right, David? I sure do, Chuck. So last week, I mentioned that Shannon DeConda had a client that had an audit from a contractor where they were taking the crazy position that late signatures in the medical record should result in a denial. As part of the same audit, the contractor took another unsupportable position. They denied claims because the procedure documentation 
was similar from one beneficiary to other beneficiaries in the review. The contractor cited to a portion of the Program Integrity Manual and asserted that templates, quote, generally do not provide sufficient information to adequately show the medical necessity criteria for the item's services are met, unquote. In essence, the contractor asserts that the use of a template somehow justifies denial of a claim. As my grandfather would have said, that's baloney. There's a relatively long list of assertions I hear about documentation that are equally baseless, whether claiming that the physician must personally record information in the chart or that the patient can't document HPI elements, it must be done by a medical professional. When people make these claims, they never cite to authority because they can't. Now let's think about the premise that there must be variability from patient to patient. While I would readily concede it's fishy if every patient had the same pulse or the same blood pressure, I expect that a specialized orthopedic physician is going to see many patients with substantially similar physical exams. Identical? No. But substantially similar? I actually hope so. Would most orthopedic patients have normal respiration and be alert and oriented times three? Is there any requirement that the physician elaborate in more detail on that normal respiration to prove that the respiration was checked? Absolutely not. Let's be clear. It's improper to deny claims simply because there was a template. Can a template be abused? Of course. Can they cause errors? Yes, just as the absence of a template can. Here, the contractor used medical necessity to deny the claims. That's extra bizarre. If the contractor felt there was a question as to whether the document was, the work documented was actually done, I would understand that. But the argument that doing similar work for patients suggests that the work is unnecessary is nonsensical. In fact, I would expect that for most physicians, the key elements of the exam are the same for nearly every patient. If you get such a crazy audit, fight it hard. Speaking of fighting, here's the good news Chuck promised. On a recent segment, I mentioned that a client had refunded hundreds of thousands of dollars because their lawyer had incorrectly told them a refund was required when they billed services under the wrong physician. That client had contacted me, um, and I told them that their lawyer was wrong and that they could actually appeal from this unnecessary refund. Now, some people doubt that you can appeal when you've voluntarily refunded money. Those people are wrong. In fact, just last week, or actually the week before, the contractor reached out to us and indicated that they would be reprocessing all of the claims for payment. We weren't even going to need to finish our appeal. We appealed about two months ago, and it's going to be wrapped up next week. I guess the lesson here is that some contractors, like the one Shannon was dealing with on her client, need lots of help. Others, in this particular case, Noridian, are on top of their game. I must give credit where credit is due, and Noridian did a great job of solving this problem efficiently for all involved. So Chuck, I was a huge 10,000 Maniacs fan. And for the client who was able to get back a couple of hundred thousands of dollars that their lawyer mistakenly told them they needed to refund, well, as Natalie Merchant would say, it's their time in Eden.
back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder at the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Changes that appear to favor auditors but not providers in the Medicare Integrity Program Manual are being proposed by CMS. Here now to report on this developing story, Senior Healthcare Analyst Frank Cohen. So good morning, Frank. Frank, what is CMS up to? I'm not even sure where to begin with this latest CMS disaster. I'm not angry. I'm just starting to feel a bit defeated. Uh, just like with the 2019 E&M changes, CMS had a chance to get this revision to Chapter 8 right. And just like with the 2019 E&M changes, they missed the boat. With the E&M guidelines, they failed to do any substantive testing to assess the actual impact on providers or beneficiaries, both financially and behaviorally. With respect to Chapter 8, which, by the way, is the chapter that addresses the issue of sampling and extrapolation for audits, they missed a great opportunity to bring the guidelines up to the accepted standards of statistical practice, ensuring that in an audit, the process would be fair to both the government and the providers. But they didn't. And while some of the changes were benign and involved rote wording, the majority of the big changes were constructed to protect the auditor, ensuring that the process now or then, coming up soon, will be even less fair than it has been. In any other industry, a challenge to the statistical process of an extrapolation would rely solely upon standards of statistical practice, but that's not the case with CMS. The current working copy of the Chapter 8 guidelines, as well as the proposed revisions, are rife with inaccuracies, incorrect assumptions, elastic interpretations, and license to the degree that defending the extrapolation audit shifts the burden from the government where it belongs to the provider. For example, the OIG, as well as other CMS statistical experts, have opined that using the paid amount to calculate sample size or create stratification is completely wrong and unacceptable. But because the guidelines don't require the auditor to use proper methods, it's acceptable for CMS audits. Another example has to do with the fact that most of the paid data are heavily right-skewed, meaning that the use of things like the average and the standard deviation for calculating point estimates, confidence intervals, and precision is almost always inappropriate. But because the guidelines don't discuss these issues specifically, the auditor hides behind this ambiguity, refusing to abide by established standards within the statistical community. Uh, in general, what I mostly found were CYA changes that provide more cover for the auditors. To me, in my opinion, it looks like CMS just took all the issues that were used to successfully defeat inappropriate extrapolations in the past, and instead of raising the bar to acceptable standards, it just provided more excuses for poor statistical behavior and uh, statistical techniques and bad auditing behavior. It actually lowered even further, if that's even possible, the accountability bar for CMS contracted auditors. Finally, I was disappointed to see that several issues that I thought should have been addressed were not. For example, there was no discussion of using non-parametric measures in the case of grossly skewed samples. Even though the OMB, the GAO, and the OIG, and CMS have all promulgated guidelines regarding acceptable precision rates for overpayment estimates, there is nothing within the revised guidelines that even talks about precision. And I've seen extrapolations proceed where the precision has been so high as to render extrapolation all but useless. But again, since there's no guidance within the Program Integrity Manual, the contract auditor is left to decide this authoritatively on their own. 
I'm also disappointed to see that in Section 8.4.1.2, we are still told that by law, the determination that a sustained or high level of payment error exists is not subject to administrative or judicial review. Unfortunately, this whole thing continues to fuel the fervor for ALJ hearings, adding to the already untenable backlog that currently exists. And if the past is any predictor of the future, I believe we will continue to see a high success rate at having extrapolations overturned when the logic is presented to an independent arbitrator, such as an ALJ. In the immortal words of Ann Richards, former, former governor of Texas, life isn't fair, but government must be. And that's the world according to Frank. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Frank, very much. That was Senior Healthcare Analyst Frank Cohen. Frank is the Director of Business Intelligence and Analytics for Doctors Management. Is it possible that a hospital in a major metropolitan city could be operating without computers? Rack Motter investigator reporter and New York attorney Ed Roach lived to tell about his near-death experience in a Barcelona hospital. It's a story we're calling the Spanish Inquisition. Back with us live, emphasis on live, is Ed Roach. Welcome back, Ed. Hey, Chuck. Recently, I was in Barcelona, a vibrant city full of art, nice breakfast, then unbelievable pain in my abdomen, cold sweat, screaming with each breath. I was blacking out. My student called 911, put a cold towel on my forehead, and kept yelling, stay with us, stay with us. Hospital Clinic de Barcelona. The last thing I remember was, here, breathe into this. I woke up, a nurse, do you know what day it is? No, it's Sunday afternoon. I'd been out three days. I became aware of being hooked up to a number of tubes. I'm alive, what the hell happened? Major surgery, you were lucky, get some rest. Burhoff's syndrome, a tear occurs at the left posterolateral aspect of the distal esophagus and extends for several centimeters. Herman Borglau, a Dutch physician, characterized the syndrome in 1715 when a captain in Amsterdam was celebrating his return from Asia, his last return. The syndrome is a rare event, more than 80% mortality. Ambulance service, two arrhythmias, 11 days in the hospital, seven in the ICU, barium swallow test, round-the-clock care, daily medical consultations, a grocery bag full of drugs, major surgery, post-operative care, stitches in, stitches out. Then, time to go home. A thick letter arrives from Spain. It's the medical bill. The total, $13,000. In the United States, the surgery alone would be $350,000. The cost of medical services in Spain is less than 10% of the United States. It isn't 10% cheaper or 15% or even 25%, but more than 90% cheaper. How can that be? One explanation might be quality. I went for a post-operative check here in New York. Hey, Doc, can you tell me how that surgery on my esophagus looks? His answer, I can't even tell you that surgery. So it's not quality. The Hospital Clinic de Barcelona is a world-class institution. The drugs are about the same, only much less expensive. That would not account for the incredible price difference. What was it? I kept rereading the bill. Compared to a hospital statement in the United States, it was much shorter, 
only 20 or so claim lines. What was missing? I kept going over everything I'd seen at the hospital. Then it dawned on me. I could not remember seeing even one computer the entire time. Perhaps there was a screen at the nurse's station and the step-down unit, but it was not used much. The treatment in Spain was very much unlike that in the United States, where a computer on wheels follows around a doctor like a stalking robot. For every three minutes spent with a patient, someone spends 10 minutes or more on the computer. Is more time spent handling data than caring for patients? Could it be that the technology we all believe is a great fountain of efficiency actually is a source of excessive cost? Is the United States killing itself by over-informatizing medical care? In the next series of articles, we will examine the process of healthcare informatization in the United States. Next time, we will examine how cyber helps the pharmacy benefit management industry inflate the cost of prescription medication. See you then. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ed, very much. That was Rock Monitor, investigator, reporter, and New York attorney, Ed Roach. Ed is the director of scientific intelligence, Veraclue, New York, LLC. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, target of probe and educate reviews by the Medicare administrative contractors are back in the news. Reporting our lead story this morning is healthcare attorney Andrew Walker. Good morning, Drew. Welcome back to Monitor Monday. Thank you, Chuck, and Ed, it's nice to have you back. Sounds like a scary experience. Um, I want to talk about TPE. I just wanted to uh, briefly say, uh, with regard to uh, uh, Nancy's comments, uh, hyperbaric uh, chambers, we have uh, defended some audits in that area, and they uh, can be very challenging in terms of how the providers may be uh, keeping records. What we have now is, you know, TPE, and, and you've heard about it. Uh, there's been a couple pilot programs, but the actual implementation date is uh, September 17th of this year, so it's pretty recent. Uh, we actually have several cases, and we look at each contractor um, and the type of audit it is to uh, inform us of the strategic approach uh, that we're going to take in an audit. And here... Uh, I'd, I'd recommend one that is very proactive. It is essentially set up as a compliance program, but not um, uh, utilizing your uh, own independent or in-house uh, auditor, uh, but a CMS uh, contractor. And so they take 20 to 40 claims, and if you're not compliant after three rounds, you essentially can be referred um, to a statistically projected audit, to a 100% prepayment review, which is administratively very challenging to Iraq, um, even um, uh, for a, a fraud investigation. And so the key is, um, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is open communication uh, with the auditors. The challenge, as we know, is when these auditors look at claims, and they say what they think is the right way to do it. Uh, we often disagree, and we're often correct. And although overturns on appeals can affect your rate, you're not going to get to the ALJ uh, before the next round. You, you may get to redetermination 
and uh, reconsideration before uh, maybe a third round. So we can't uh, rely upon that. We have to rely upon communication with the uh, contractors. And uh, in our uh, conversations with the contractors, they've off they've offered uh, one-on-one communication. The CMS actually has a video on it, uh, uh, acting as if this person is like a personal trainer. But even before claims are denied initially, um, you could have uh, communications. And so you have three chances to reduce your percentage denials. In one case, we have it in writing from the contractor that you have to get under 25%. uh, And so that is, is the number that they told us we have to look for. I think uh, being proactive, treating it like compliance, uh, monitoring uh, after the first round uh, how you're doing uh, before they take new records on the second round could help with uh, appropriate uh, education uh, in order to get yourself off this TPE. And then there's a promise not to audit you for uh, an entire year. So. Again, being proactive, and the challenges uh, to me really are the overzealous denials and how we persuade uh, the reviewer that, number one, we're correct and that the changes we make are correct. With that, uh, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Drew, very much. That was healthcare attorney Andrew Walkler. Drew was a managing partner of Walkler and Associates in Royal Licks, Michigan. Now's the time for the Monitor Buddy Listener Survey. Once again, here's Nancy Beckley. All righty, kind of tapping into Drew's comments right there. Very interesting comments, Drew, because I've been involved in many myself. Um, of our listeners this morning, 45% appealed results, some or all, following round one. 8% of our listeners this morning appealed results, some or all, following the round two. And, of course, 27% of our listeners so far have not been invited to TPE, and then we have some that are not a provider. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much, Nancy. That's going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, whom you just heard, Frank Cohen, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Ed Roach. Welcome back, Ed. Nice to have you with us. And Andrew Walkler, we want to thank you all for starting off your week with us. I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Rack Monitor, Monitor Monday. Thanks, everyone, for being with us. Have a great week. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.